Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Hello, Warbirders. If you enjoy the program and it fills a part of your day, please consider supporting it through the World of Warbirds Patreon. There are advantages to being a patron of the podcast, such as getting the episodes a week earlier, getting bonus materials, and better access for feedback and suggestions. And you'll have the satisfaction of helping contribute to the podcast. Now on to today's show. Introduction. Now, I'm going to make a confession. When I first got the suggestion for this episode by Kirk Fietland, I did something that you're not supposed to do. I formed an opinion on this aircraft based solely on its appearance. I judged the book by its cover, and my verdict wasn't impressive. I mean, you have to admit, it's a little funny looking. Firstly, it looks too simple to be interesting, like a thrown-together kit plane. It's got this big slab of a wing sitting on top of a boxy fuselage with a completely conventional tail thrown on the back. The tail fin even has struts, as if they goofed and added them as an afterthought to strengthen it later. The nose looks too small, suggesting an underpowered engine that just isn't going to deliver the goods. Then there is the gear. It dangles below, looking like the designer's child drew it on the blueprint with a crayon when the draftsman stepped out to go to the bathroom. The legs look too long, the wheels look too small, and the whole setup seems destined to bend or break off or dig in and flip the whole bird over the first time it attempts a landing or takeoff. Finally, there is the basic prejudice against a liaison aircraft. The word liaison could be interesting, meaning a meeting, and even suggesting an illicit affair or a hookup, as the kids say these days. But it's not a machine that fights or bombs or torpedoes, you know, all those powerful verbs. It liaises, which sounds as exciting as cool bathwater. I was having trouble getting worked up to do this episode. But just wait a minute. The Lysander was a liaison aircraft, and that one turned into one of my favorite episodes. And one of yours, too, judging by the number of listens and the views and the comments. So, I put away my prejudice, and I started researching, and the more and more that I read, the more cranked up I got about the Storch. So, after spending all this time slagging her, let's get into this and start appreciating this bird that might turn heads in the wrong way initially, but in the end would be loved by friend and foe. Design and Development Gerhard Fiesler was born in April 1896 near Cologne. During the First World War, he joined the air service, and although he was hampered by both injuries due to a crash and grounding due to illness, he still managed to rack up 19 confirmed kills with three probables, and he was awarded the Golden Military Merit Cross and the Iron Cross First and Second Class. After the war ended, he ran a print shop, but he was clearly still suffering from a chronic case of the aviation bug. It took a while, but he finally succumbed to the disease, 
closing up his shop in 1926 in order to become a flight instructor for the Rob Katzenstein Company. When not instructing, he did stunt flying, eventually becoming so good that he could charge exhibition fees for performing his routine. He even developed his own maneuver that if you've been to any air show, you've surely seen. It involves starting at full power and maximum airspeed. Then you pull the aircraft up into a quarter loop and then into a vertical climb, which will bleed off airspeed. Just before the climb completely stops, stomp on full rudder to yaw the aircraft over through 180 degrees until the nose is pointed straight down. Then dive vertically to the starting altitude and pull out, exiting in the opposite direction. I think I'll maybe try it this weekend in my Cessna 172. Just kidding. Anyway, this maneuver is called a Fiesler after our subject, but it's also called a hammerhead or stall turn. On top of coming up with his own signature move, he designed his own stunt plane that was called the Fiesler F1 Tigerschwalbe. The Swedish Air Force liked the look of it so much that they ordered 25 of them. In 1930, Rob Katzenstein went bankrupt and Fiesler was out of a job. Instead of moping around about it, he used his savings to purchase the Siegel Flugzeugbau Kassel Sailplane Company, renaming it Fiesler Flugzeugbau. Fiesler and his company were in the right place at the right time for the rebuilding of the Luftwaffe. And in 1935, the company started winning military contracts. The Storch was conceived by Fiesler himself, plus his chief designer, Reinhold Muse, and technical director, Eric Bachem. This menage a trois began as a private project with possible applications in both the military and civilian flying world. The team designed a high-wing monoplane with seats for three, a pilot and two tandem passenger seats behind. The fuselage was constructed of fabric-covered welded steel tubes. The wings were a fabric-covered wood structure with aluminum slots along the entirety of the leading edge. The trailing edge of the wing featured wooden flaps. The outer portions of these were ailerons. Power was to be provided by an Argus AS-10 engine turning a two-bladed propeller. This engine, which was used on many Luftwaffe training aircraft, was an air-cooled inverted V8 that could produce up to 270 horsepower. Supposedly, this engine was quite reliable in unfavorable conditions, such as cold or dust. This reliability, as we now know, was to come in very useful everywhere, from the desert to Russia. Another interesting feature that was built into the Storch was that the wings could be folded back along the sides of the fuselage. As someone who has tried to shoehorn a dozen training aircraft into a hangar, this would be a very welcome feature indeed. The aircraft could even be easily road transported, either on a flatbed trailer or as a trailer, by simply hitching to the tail and towing it slowly on the mains. Unlike many aircraft, the undercarriage was one of the main distinguishing features of this aircraft and was the inspiration for the nickname of Storch. 
The spindly legs hang down, just like those of the long-legged bird, you know, that brings babies. Everyone knows that storks are where babies come from. These legs look deceptively spindly, but were built very strong. They were attached to the wing roots and were braced to the lower fuselage with multiple struts providing great strength in multiple angles. The long spindly look of the gear was due to the insane amount of shock-absorbing travel that was built into the gear. On touchdown, there was first 20 centimeters or 8 inches of settling before the oleo and spring absorbers began absorbing the shock. Then there was another 40 centimeters or 16 inches of travel as the oil and springs handled the landing energy. In comparison, my Cessna 172's front oleo has only a couple of inches of play, hence the way we treat it as if it were made of glass. Not the Storch. It was designed to handle being slammed hard onto rough surfaces with high descent rates and angles. With the design settled, it was time to start building. Prototypes in 1936, five prototypes of what was now known as the FI-156 were built. They performed so well that more prototypes were ordered right away. In order to give the rest of the German aircraft industry a chance at the contract, a specification was drawn up for everyone else to try to build a comparable machine. But as the specification was based on what the Storch could do, it was going to be pretty hard for anyone else to beat it. Messerschmitt tried with their BF-163. A little aside with the BF-163. If you were Google searching for the ME-163 and landed on the BF-163, you'd be in for a big surprise and vice versa. The ME-163 was of course the rocket-powered bomber killer known as the Comet. The BF-163 was Messerschmitt's answer to the Storch. It was powered by the same Argus AS-10 engine and, no offense, kind of looked like Messerschmitt had copied off of Fiesler's homework. To continue the schoolwork metaphor, the assignment was also handed in late, in 1938. They built one prototype, and its performance was similar, but not better, than the fi one 56. It was also more complicated and more expensive to produce. So only one prototype was ever put together and flown, and the 163 number was recycled later for the Comet. Another competitor, the Siebel SI-201, was a truly weird-looking aircraft. Imagine taking a toll booth off the highway and bolting two wings to the side of it and hanging a pusher engine on its butt. In order to keep the rear fuselage under the pusher prop, it was made thin like a sewer pipe back to the tail. It looked as aerodynamic as a flying brick, although the fully glassed canopy must have had good visibility. It also looks as if it would have acted very well as a greenhouse to grow tomatoes. The first prototype SI-201 flew in summer of 1938. Supposedly its performance was good in the air with a very good short takeoff or landing characteristics, but it did have problems. 
At higher speeds, the skinny tail boom developed an annoying flutter under certain flight conditions. The second prototype somewhat had a beefed up tail boom, but it didn't really solve the flutter problem, and the SI-201 also had very picky center of gravity limits, making it operationally troublesome, and further development was ordered to be ceased. But wait a minute. Focke-Wulf decided to take a kick at the can, and we know that they build great airplanes, right? So the FW-186 must have given the Storch a run for its money. Even more, the FW-186 was an autogyro. In three years of podcasting, I don't think we've ever mentioned the autogyro yet. It's a very niche aircraft, and is the precursor to the helicopter. It looks kind of like a helicopter, with a big rotor blade on top, but the rotor is either unpowered or mostly unpowered. Like in a helicopter, the function of the rotor is to spin in the air and provide lift. But unlike a helicopter, another propeller driven by an engine is required for thrust. The rotor acts more like a spinning glider wing. The theory is that this aircraft should have good stall, short takeoff or landing, characteristics, especially in landing. If you've ever seen a helicopter practice engine failure auto-rotation landings, you can see what an autogyro could do. It could come in quite steep for a landing. The problem would be on takeoff. It seems that Focke-Wulf took one of their highly successful FW-56 Stossers, which was a single-engine parasol-winged advanced trainer, and ripped off the wing and installed a rotor. A clutch system was needed to spin up the rotor before takeoff. Imagine if you had to high-speed taxi around enough to get the rotor spinning on its own. The FW-186 did fly and could take off and land in very short distances, but it could not hover, nor could it take off or land vertically. There were two seats in tandem. The advantages of the 186 were just outweighed by the complications of the unorthodox design, and they only built one. So what was left still standing at the end of the competition? The Storch. Production. Almost 3,000 Storches were built, mostly by Fiesler, although production was shifted elsewhere as Fiesler was also a subcontractor for the FW-190 program, and eventually demand for those parts outweighed the production of the Storch, which was then produced in France, Czechoslovakia, and Romania. Surprisingly, the Soviet Union also built a version of the Storch. Following the signing of the Molotov-Rippentrop Pact in 1939, several aircraft, including 156s, were supplied to the USSR. Oleg Antonov was put in charge of making the technology work for the Soviets, and he pretty much copied the design wholesale, putting in a different engine, and they called it the OKA-38. There were two versions, one for liaison work, and the other was configured as an air ambulance that could carry two stretchers and a medic. I have not been able to figure out how many they built. But this wouldn't be the first time for Germany's enemies to gaze admiringly at the Storch. 
commandeered Fi-156s ended up being used by many Allied commanders during the war, and I went down a bit of an internet rabbit hole trying to figure out why. Was it because the Storch was inherently better than the Allied liaison aircraft? It did seem to occupy a sweet spot, size and power-wise, between the tiny American Piper L4 and the big British Lysander. But was there something about the performance that made it more desirable? Or was it simply that it was available, abandoned on the battlefield? Hey look, free airplane! And outside the Allies' own procurement supply lines? But wouldn't that in itself cause a problem? If you needed a part for the thing, you'd have to cannibalize other Storches, or have your maintenance crews improvise something. Some internet commenters suggested that it was just the thrill of using the enemy's equipment and thumbing your nose at the other side. And that would explain perhaps using it once, but not adapting it as your own personal transport aircraft. Especially when, wouldn't there be at least some danger that some trigger-happy allied gunner might open up on you, even though your Storch now has a freshly painted, friendly markings? Because, hey, it looked and sounded like a Luftwaffe plane, so I shot first and I asked questions after. In the end, I decided to table this for another possible episode on comparing liaison aircraft. Because, you know, we've really got to get into operational history. I know this is going to sound a little boring, and I've said it before in the podcast, but the Storch really did serve from before the conflict until the very last day and went everywhere the German forces went. As such, there were versions with modifications to suit just about every role you could think of, and some I bet you wouldn't think of. Some had a gun installed in the rear for defense, Some versions had filtered intakes and larger air coolers for tropical and desert conditions. Some had hard points to carry camera pods or extra fuel tanks. There was an air ambulance version with an extra large rear fuselage door to admit two stretchers. Instead of the little landing gear wheels, some were equipped with tracked gear. Yes, tracks like a tank. The only other aircraft I've seen with this was the B-36. Some had devices installed to lay down a smoke screen, and there was an anti-submarine version that could carry a depth charge. There was a civilian transport version with five seats. There was even a version that could lay down telephone wire. Yes, it would fly along and reel out telephone wire. When I said that Storches were coveted by their enemies, I wasn't kidding. Yes, The Russians built and used their exact copies of the Fi-156, while British leadership seemed to have a fetish for the type. Several air vice marshals of the RAF used captured Storches as their personal aircraft, and none other than Field Marshal Montgomery chose to use a Storch as his personal transport. A Storch was the last aircraft shot down by the Allies on the Western Front, although that didn't really seem to halt their use. The French and others continued to use captured Storches after the war for many roles, including search and rescue and agricultural spraying. Survivors 
There are too many storches to mention all over the world, and many are in an airworthy state. Perhaps even more impressive is that the original design has spawned many replica and modern scale versions that are a testament to the genius of the original design. Now, for those who have chosen to become part of the Warbirds team on Patreon, there is a bonus episode on the Storch that includes the story of Operation Aicha, which was the mission to rescue Benito Mussolini, and also a profile of test pilot Hannah Reich, who managed to fly a Storch into and land in the middle of the devastated capital during the Battle of Berlin. Thanks again to all who support the podcast, either via PayPal at World of Warbirds B17 or through Patreon. I appreciate it more than you know. Until next time.